Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Living a Holistic Life with your host, Renee David Alkali. Are you searching for the path to the discovery of wholeness and balance in your life? We'll discuss the future of holistic health care and how the concepts discussed on today's show can help you make better choices in your life. Now, here is your host, Renee David Alkali. Good morning, and welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit. Living a Holistic Life. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you again. And uh, we had um, some call-ins about our uh, previous shows. So uh, one of the questions that came up, and I think we'll we'll start with that this morning, was um, regarding the RDAs. There seems to be a lot of confusion about what they are. Uh, Do they stand for the name of a person? Or is it a standard, or what is it? It actually is a kind of a standard, but um, we're going to see that it's, for the most part, not a very exact standard. Uh, So we're going to ask a question here. How are the RDAs different from optimum nutrient levels? First of all, what does RDA stand for? RDA, the term stands for Recommended Dietary Allowance. And the, the recommended dietary allowance has been established basically uh, in a very, in a relatively, I wouldn't say totally arbitrary, but, but relatively arbitrary way. Um, to understand the difference between RDAs and ONL, or optimum nutrient level, we need, first of all, to define the terms, which we did with the RTAs. RDA, so they're defined as levels of intake of essential nutrients that on a basis supposedly not arbitrary, on a basis of some scientific knowledge, are deemed or judged to be by by the uh, Food and Nutrition Board to be adequate to meet the known nutritional needs of practically all healthy persons. Those are such loaded terms, uh, I don't know exactly where to start with breaking them down. But I would say that um, in, uh, uh, in a particular reading uh, from Matty Tolanen, uh, which is Vitamins and Minerals in Health and Nutrition uh, from, the 19, from 1990, Matty defines the RDAs as um, those levels that lay down the daily intakes of proteins, vitamins, and minerals, which are required to maintain or for the maintenance of good health. There's, and here's the problem with Ms. Tolanen's definition. The RDAs, by her own statement, uh, further on into the reading, um, have little to do with the maintenance of good health. The RDAs are not required for good health. They're recommended for the avoidance of well-known deficiency symptoms. And that is really how she goes on to define it, not as something for good health, but something to avoid well-known deficiencies. So now we have a problem in the application. 
because the reading aptly points out that there are a number of, uh, of problems with the definition itself, namely such terms as essential. And the other term that's hard to define is healthy persons. These are very value-loaded, and so they're subject to a broad range of interpretation. I would add that other terms in this definition are equally problematic, namely um, on the basis of scientific knowledge. So I would ask, what studies are we looking at? And who is funding the studies? What is the bias of the studies that we're looking at? Um, so there's a lot of questions that come up. Also, known nutritional needs. Mm. Can, can a nutritional need be standardized? Uh, philosophically, we could even ask, what is knowledge? How do we know things? And will this knowledge remain constant across life stages of an individual or across cultural and national boundaries? So there are so many questions that come up that it's hard to really, um, it's hard to, to really work with RDAs without some um, adaptation of, of, of understanding. Regarding the second term, we also have some issues. The second term is optimal nutrient levels, or ONL. In, in the reading, it states that it's not possible, uh, at this time at least, uh, in any readings that I've seen, to establish optima. This apparently is, is also the view of the NAS, the National Academy of Science. So the question, however as viewed by many nutritionists, is too broad. It's just too general in determining optimal nutrient levels. Because as I said in one of our, my previous shows, we're dealing, when we deal with an individual, we're dealing with biochemical individuality. Biochemical individuality itself is an essential factor. Uh, so best, based on tests, for example, or blood work, hair samples, diet analysis, or symptom symptomology, it is possible to come to some kind of informed, to an informed opinion, first, about possible nutrient deficiencies, and second, about potential optimal nutrient levels. And that's about the best we can do. Many nutrients don't have an RDA established for them. We could ask, since there are scientific studies, why do certain nutrients don't, do, why do they not have uh, recommended dietary allowances that supposedly by our previous definitions would work against our becoming ill? So here again, we have the NAS, the National Academy of Science, we have to remember that this is a private, nonprofit organization that was primarily created to advise the federal government on scientific and technical matters. So it's this organization that's researched the RDAs and which publishes the, these RDAs. And then these RDAs are promulgated or knowledge about them is spread about to the public and that knowledge is spread about via certain government uh, agencies, government dissemination. 
So this process of dissemination reaches the public in uh, well in various ways, including very strongly the allopathic health community. So when we refer to the allopathic health community, we're of course speaking about hospitals, doctors, nurses, uh, dieticians, uh, and perhaps scientific and popular commercial publications. Also, sometimes science sections of newspapers. So it's therefore the NAS, this organization, which determines whether or not a nutrient has an RDA, a recommended dietary allowance. And they've also determined that certain nutrients do not have an RDA because there is insufficient research data on these nutrients. Uh, for setting an RDA, but there's sufficient data for determining a general intake range. So let's go a little deeper and understand that the RDAs are not designed to meet the needs of certain persons. So here we have whole subgroups or groups that are cut out of the equation of RDAs in the, from the very start. What's, what persons are specifically excluded from the RDA analysis? Well, uh, persons with metabolic disorders, uh, persons with chronic diseases, persons with injuries, or premature birth, or other medical conditions, and certainly persons involved in any drug therapy. In short, any person falling outside of some broad definition of healthy persons. So going back again to Maddie Tolanen's uh, book, Vitamins and Minerals in Health and Nutrition, uh, which is from, the ni- from 1990, uh, she states as follows. The individual RDAs make clearly expressed exceptions of premature babies, pregnant and nursing mothers, all those over 50 years of age, people with metabolic disorders, those who suffer from infections or chronic diseases, and those who suffer from some illness which requires that they receive permanent medication. So, you know, we're we're beginning to see that this lets out an awful lot of people, if not the majority of people, to, to complicate this picture even further The NAS has stated in previous versions of the RDAs that individual persons cannot expect to determine their personal needs from the NAS recommendation or recommendations. So by this statement, it's possible to say that the RDAs are designed to meet the needs of some type of a utopian everyman. And they're not really designed to meet the needs of anyone else. We can say, uh, to sum it up, that everyone or everyone can be said to be specifically excluded from the RDA analysis. Um, That's perhaps taking it a little too far, but we can understand how, how the reasoning would take us there. Because all of us, whether we're passing through a life stage or a particular part of our life where we've had an injury or an illness, for all of us, we're going to come into those periods of our lives, whether uh, chronic or whether temporary, 
where simply the RDAs will have little significance because we're going to simply need more nutrients or we may be toxic and taking too much of something. So there, there's so many different variants on this topic. Um, I hope my conclusion hasn't gone too far afield, but it does seem to be a logical conclusion from the given facts. I would say, in all fairness to the NAS, however, that their research certainly has value. And whether or not we agree with the determinations or whether the, with the outcomes, they are a measure, at least, against which we can do further research or against which some analysis can take place. So um, let's ask another question. And certainly for all of you out there, if you have any questions, we welcome your, your calls. And if you're calling in, uh, uh, we'll, we definitely welcome your, your calls and your questions on any of these uh, subjects. So I'm going to ask a further question. What is the relationship between the RDAs and the specific nutritional needs of a specific individual. So this now becomes a little more meaningful. And this question really has two parts, at least two parts, um, at least two parts, I would say, maybe more. So first, by keeping a diet record over an extended period of time and analyzing the nutrient intake for this period, if you begin to do this, you can see if you fall short of the RDAs. So we take the RDAs as a measuring rod. And based on this, we can believe that we can draw certain conclusions regarding the risk factors of specific individuals as these factors relate to nutritional deficiencies. So here we are using the NAS as a standard against which to measure, am I getting enough vitamin C from my food or from some other source? Am I getting enough magnesium? Am I getting enough of the minerals? Well, the NSA has told me, uh, or the NAS has told me that this, these are the levels that I need. And where am I on this spectrum? So I can use that if I am in general good health. So the second part of this would invalidate much of the first part, however, because even though a diet record over an extended period of time is helpful in forming certain conclusions about nutrient intake, it's not unreasonable to say that this has little to do with the RDAs. There are many authors, uh, including Ms. Tolanen, who have observed on this, for example, that changes in environmental factors uh, the nutrient content of soil, pollution factors, the widespread use of chemical additives, um, the loss of nutrients in foods due to processing, or the high stress in modern society, and this just to name a few, have made the RDAs basically obsolete because besides these factors, the genetic makeup of specific individuals has to be taken into account. Then there are all the individuals that have already been excluded as exceptions to the RDAs. So now we have uh, the following statement by, by Ms. Tolan, and she writes, we do not know what the exact individual requirements for vitamins and minerals are, and it is even more difficult to define the needs of a person who is chronically ill. 
So the the subject matter is becoming more and more complicated or more and more clear that we need to find some different methodology. How how are how are a person's daily vitamins requirements related to a person's stores? So you're you're out there and many of you are taking some kind of vitamin mineral supplement or you're eating foods with an awareness of what the vitamins and minerals content of these foods uh, is. And now we, you want to know how is that daily vitamin requirement related to what your body is storing. The body stores are also called body pools or the body pools of vitamins. We need to fully appreciate this question. It has to be understood within the context of, first of all, human requirements. And secondly, taking an idea from animal husbandry, something we, taking an idea from animal husbandry, minimal requirements for a maximal output. It's interesting that uh, people who are involved in animal husbandry are more aware of what does it take on a minimal level to get the maximum output from a particular animal, from a cow or, or a, a horse or a donkey or, you know. So this is very much part of animal husbandry. When it comes to human beings, we don't use these kind of equations. And um, perhaps we ought to consider, we could learn a lot about how we take care of show animals, for example, or racehorses. We're very aware of all of these factors and taking care of ourselves. We don't quite take those steps. I'd like to go back because I, I really find Ms. Tolanen's work important. Uh, even though it was written in, the, in 1990, um, there are certainly more current works. But um, she, she did a good job and she has some very interesting definitions. So in her definition, we read, for example, that the RDAs, lay down the daily intakes of proteins, vitamins, and minerals, which are required for the maintenance of good health. We read that earlier. So if we can say thus, we have a standard. As flawed as it may be for determining those levels of nutrients which the body of a hypothetical average person will need and use up in the course of functioning hypothetical average person. I don't know an average person. I don't know if you know an average person. So um, we can already begin to, to know where I'm going. We may assume that these RDAs are those levels of nutrients which will not necessarily build stores in body stores in the body or body pools of nutrients. So the second point a minimal requirement for maximal output. This charts the minimal amount of vitamin supply required to reach maximal output, and no doubt meaning work output on the part of an animal. The importance of this determination is evident in that the business of animal husbandry, like any business, would be concerned with the issue of maximum profitability. In other words, there would be no profit in supplying an animal with more than minimal levels needed to reach maximal output if higher levels didn't produce any greater output. This is an economic question. 
Later on, we're going to see that it's also a health uh, question, especially in a society that is so involved with overeating and overconsumption and uh, issues of heart disease and and, uh, obesity and diabetes, all these chronic diseases that are rampant that are based on our are going way beyond what we need in order to really achieve our maximum levels. So it's not just a economic question. The optimal, it's the optimal health of the animal does not appear in this case to be in itself a consideration. So we have to again refine this to see not only maximal output, but also what is optimal health. We're still working on that one. So, Thus, body pools or body stores would be created by those levels of essential nutrients which we're ingesting, which are ingested and absorbed beyond our basic requirements and depending on the level of our output, beyond the maximum level of our output, whatever that maximum is for each individual, and we determine that by what? By very simple means, by activity, by, by lifestyle, and certainly by, by the differences in metabolism of different individuals. Um, so there's a number of factors. Since, however, the body always seeks homeostasis, and homeostasis means balance, it always will seek homeostasis of sorts. If the body stores if these stores reach a certain level, then the body's regulating mechanisms cause a greater loss of vitamins and minerals than would otherwise occur. And we're going to excrete them or we're going to eliminate them in some way through sweat, through urine, through bowel movements, through breath. In some way, the body will find a way to balance itself out, uh, avoiding an overload or a toxic level of anything even good things. Conversely, if we lower the daily intake, the body is no longer able to accumulate vitamin stores and the body pool diminishes. This is an important consideration um, in our understanding of the onset of illness as a result of deficiencies. At that level of intake, we observe biochemical and functional disturbances as well as morphological changes. We're going to take a a break in the conversation at this point. Uh, You're listening to Mind, Body, Spirit, uh, Living a Holistic Life. And today we've been discussing the RDAs, um, the Recommended Dietary Allowances, as published by the NAS and disseminated um, by various uh, government agencies and throughout the allopathic medical system and in various journals. Um, I want to uh, uh, make mention of our last show where we had uh, Joy Jungdari on our program and where we discussed um, uh, some of the programs that are available free through her and through our own organization for veterans as part of our Healing Our Vets program. Um, If uh, you are a veteran and you have any issues with PTSD or battle fatigue or high anxiety, uh, we welcome you to contact us 
at 718-544-5997. We have a number of free programs here. We are located in Queens, in New York City. Um, And um, please get in touch with us. Let us know how we can help. Uh, Also, for any of you who would like more information or who are in need of a personal consultation, um, our website uh, is www.genesishealthbeauty.com. It's www.genesis, G-E-N-E-S-I-S, healthbeauty.com where you'll find additional information about products that may be of help to you and uh, services that are provided uh, by us either on a local in-house basis or via Skype uh, regarding consultations, via Skype, uh, telephone, email. Um, Certainly we have people who we're working with all around the globe So uh, if we can help, uh, we are here to work with you. So let's get back to our show at this point uh, and the topic that we've been discussing. Uh, We've been discussing the recommended dietary allowances, and we've seen some of the problems in defining or in coming to these standards or defining these terms in the first place. Let's ask another question here. What are the antioxidant nutrients and how do they work to prevent damage to our cells? So now I'm going to get a little more specific in the kind of nutrients that that might be of value to you and that you need to consider whether you're getting in sufficient proportions through your foods, through your diet, or if necessary, through some form of supplement. My, my basic approach is always going to be get it from foods uh, if you can. And if you can't get it from regular foods, then find some superfoods, but still foods. In the event of a proven clinical deficiency, we might be in need of some kind of uh, supplementation. So the natural, there are natural dietary antioxidants. And we'll see in a moment how antioxidants work. But what are they? The, generally, the antioxidants are selenium, zinc, vitamin A, vitamin C, and vitamin E, plus the B-carotene. So in order to understand how antioxidants work to prevent damage to the cells, it's necessary for us to understand the relationship of oxygen to the cell. First and foremost, oxygen is a nutrient. Um, I know we don't usually consider it that, but I've given many talks in public venues. I've put it in my books. Um, Oxygen, for me, represents the primary nutrient. Uh, Without oxygen, nothing could properly work in the body, and certainly we know that we would not have life without oxygen. So from the point of view of gas exchange, uh, at a certain point in the lungs, which is at the alveoli, it's brought, oxygen is brought to the heart, 
And from there, it's carried by the arteries to feed every cell in the body. And that, in turn, produces by a very complex series of biochemical conversions, energy. Now, oxygen, however, has properties other than energy production. Oxygen free radicals, for example, are oxygen atoms which have an unpaired electron. I don't want to get too scientific, but just basic, basic biochemistry. And this leads to compounds which are harmful to health. Like when we have free radicals or an, an, oxy, an atom with an unpaired electron, this is harmful to health because the nature of free radicals is such that they then attack the cellular structure. Since the cell membrane consists primarily of fatty acids, these cell membranes are highly susceptible to the rancidifying, the rancidity, the effects of rancidity of the free radicals of oxygen. Rancidity is always a problem. You certainly wouldn't be eating rancid foods. We don't want to create rancid cells in our system. So we can say that free radicals are like and kind of inner radiation to which our cells are exposed constantly, thousands of times each day. And our bodies have the amazing capacity to balance all this, to handle it for the most part. Part of that management is the amount of antioxidants that we consume exogenously or that we take into our bodies from the external world. Because antioxidants are substances which will then react chemically with free radicals and render them harmless. They're antioxidants. At the same time, an antioxidant breaks the vicious circle, which involves the decomposition of fatty acids and proteins. And that decomposition then creates new free radicals and if it's allowed to continue without any intervention on the part of the biochemistry of the body, uh, then that eventually leads to cell, cellular death. So what's the general relationship between our immune system and the environment? Because certainly all of us are aware that we could not get through a single day if we didn't have that protective shield, that, that immune system. So how might the quality of our environment affect the demands on our immune system? And even more, which nutrients appear to be most actively involved in the functioning of our immune system? So let's step back a moment. And if we understand the environment and environmental health and disease factors to be anything which is outside of ourselves, the outer environment, because we certainly have an inner environment, then we can view the general relationship to be one in which the immune system protects us from contracting allergies and infectious diseases, which also helps minimize the risk of cardiovascular disorders, minimizing the risk of rheumatic and other autoimmune diseases, arthritis, cancer, also, the proper functioning of the immune system protects us from the environmental wear and tear, which contributes to the aging process. 
So none of us, uh, you know, we live in a society where, where apparently youth is idolized and, um, you know, everyone is trying to stay young, either with facelifts or plastic surgery or finding some new magic cure. Um, I think the idea of aging gracefully uh, has long passed our society and what, what our values seem to be. So regarding bacteria and viruses, uh, the only model that we've had until now has been the Pasteur model of medicine. And that views these as part of the outer environment. That would be consistent with, this, with the germ theory. But now there's been that theory, even in the Pasteur institutes around the world, is not is no longer the the current theory, because uh, there's been a growing body of evidence that the more correct theories were those of a, a contemporary of Pasteur who didn't achieve the fame of Pasteur but was a a brilliant scientist. His name was Beauchamp, and um, there's there's some question where Pasteur got some of her ideas. They were classmates. And apparently, many some of Pasteur's ideas may have come from Beauchamp, who did not fully understand them, and so he revised them into his theory. But uh, Beauchamp really placed much more emphasis, after he discussed germs and germ theory in general, much more emphasis on the internal environment factors. And this is still an area of high speculation, leaves the room, room for a great deal more research, which is being done. But today there's much more evidence that there are internal factors that we need to be much more aware of than the external environment by itself. So what is micronutrient therapy? How are micronutrients, micro-micronutrient needs determined? Well, first, micronutrients are those substances which our bodies need other than macronutrients. And we're going to define that. The macronutrients would be the large groups, proteins, carbohydrates, lipids, or what we call fats. So, therefore, the micronutrients are, in a limited sense, are vitamins and minerals. And in a broader sense, might include amino acids and fatty acids. When we speak about micronutrient therapy, it's the working together of vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and fatty acids to reinforce each other's physiological effects and thereby to enhance your resistance to disease. Micronutrient needs are certainly determined in several ways. So how would you do that? The actual content of micronutrients in the body can be measured uh, in a very traditional way through the blood or tissue analysis. I do. You have your doctor run a CBC and measure micronutrient levels. Is my calcium level normal? Is my magnesium level normal? How's my iron? Am I anemic? Am I not anemic? Um, do I have too much iron in my blood? Am I going to get uh, iron toxic toxicity, which can lead to neurological issues? So... Blood is a good starting point, tissue analysis, another way. Another method um, for determining micronutrient needs 
would be by an analysis of your daily diet journal. We mentioned earlier, keep a journal. In conjunction with the second method, a double portion technique can be used in which a perfect copy of the daily diet is made and the content is then analyzed in the laboratory. We break it down. So there's a further determinant, and that's urine analysis. There's uh, some problems of accuracy in all three methods. There's been a new method that was actually developed. uh, It's not completely new. It's around for about 30 years, I'd say. uh, Developed by two Swedish researchers, uh, by Dr. Ulf uh, Lind and Dr. Erland Johansson. And they've developed a microanalysis which can determine the mineral content of the individual cell. Um, you can look this up, and this method is called MicroPix. Micro, M-I-C-R-O, Pix, P-I-X-E. And P-I-X-E is our caps. And this is extremely, extremely precise. It can establish simultaneously the content of several different minerals within the cell. There's also a further method, and that's by way of functional tests. These tests measure enzyme activity. And this is based on the theory that vitamins and minerals operate in the body through a number of enzymes. So it's sometimes possible to determine the nutritional status by measuring this enzyme activity. So let's review for a minute um, some terms that that come out of, we're not going to go through a definition again, but some terms that have come out of what we've been discussing this morning. Um, we've been discussing recommended dietary allowances, RDAs. We've been discussing the idea of deficiency, whether it's subclinical, where we're not aware of it yet, or clinical whether it actually appears in the blood work that we do and we can measure, or in uh, this micro-PIX analysis that we spoke about. We also discussed the idea of optimal nourishment and optimal health and body pools and body stores. And we've just discussed uh, free radicals, uh, including dietary. From free radicals, we went on to deal with dietary antioxidants, with cellular immunity, with micronutrient therapy. And uh, across the board, we've emphasized the importance of biochemical individuality. Before we, we talk a little bit about putting, this, uh, putting our knowledge to work, um, I'm going to take a break now to, again, welcome you to as, as, uh, as our audience. Uh, it's A great pleasure to be here with you and to share information with you. Uh, Sometimes we have a guest. uh, Other times I share information with you and I welcome your calls. We will have a very uh, interesting guest with us next week uh, discussing botanical uh, ways to keep our environment pest-free. Anyone living in cities, of course, and even outside of cities, may have problems with uh, some pest infestation, whether it's mice or roaches or um, 
or as we recently had in our house in the country, um, bats and flying squirrels. Yes, bats and flying squirrels and a little family of raccoons. So um, we certainly did not want to kill them. We're not, uh, we don't want to kill any of our little creatures because they're part of our world. And um, and we don't like, in our own home, we don't like the idea of use of heavy chemical pesticides or chemical uh, deterrents for, for, these, uh, for these animals. So um, we use a botanically based or a plant-based exterminator or who doesn't exterminate actually, um, but utilizes botanicals in order to create an environment where they simply will leave and make homes somewhere else, hopefully in nature where, where they can make nice homes. So we appreciate God's creatures and we, we hope they find a nice home, but um, if they're not going to be participating with rent, we, we feel that um, they don't need to live with us right away. <laughs> so next week we will have that discussion in depth and we'll learn quite a bit about how to uh, take care of our homes and our immediate environments to make them a little healthier and safer for us. Mm. I will mention also that we have... Uh, um, we have a number of free programs through our non-for-profit organization, the Genesis Society. I welcome you to get on that website and see our free programs and our community programs. And that's at uh, www.genesissociety.org, genesissociety.org. You'll find uh, we have a program for healing our vets, uh, free programs. All of the programs I'm mentioning are free. We have a free program for children with cancer, a free program for young adults with mental disabilities. Uh, We're happy to be able to provide these programs under a uh, grant and to make them available to our community. So if you know any... uh, Uh, Any folks out there who can benefit from these programs who are within our area, which is in Queens, in Forest Hills, New York City, um, please have them contact us at 718-544-5997. We also have a, a complete cultural arts program for local artists and providing them with a venue to present their work to the community. Mm. On on another note, of course, uh, in my personal practice, which is uh, uh, which is geared to uh, helping you to become healthier, to live a healthier life, and take those steps needed. Um, if I can be of service, uh, my personal practice is GenesisHealthBeauty.com. Uh, Again, the same phone number, 718-544-5997. And on that that, uh, website, which is www.genesishealthbeauty.com, you will find a number of products and uh, technologies that can be of service to you in helping you to optimize your health or to restore your health. 
And uh, I'm also available for private consultation, whether it's one-on-one uh, -on -one in person here or via Skype or uh, by phone or by email. So, uh, uh, again, uh, you're listening to Mind, Body, Spirit, Living a Holistic Life with your host, Renee David Alkali. And I'm so happy to have you with us today. I welcome your calls and your, uh, your emails uh, regarding our shows. So we're going to continue our show at this point. And we're going to, um, we're going to be dealing with the, now that we have a good deal of information, the question comes up, how do we put this knowledge to work? Well, natural medicine, which is my field, I work with uh, alternative and complementary medicine, natural medicine, based on holistic and the, the philosophy of holism and vitalism. So this emphasizes the need of all healthcare practitioners to respect the body's innate ability to heal itself. Even if we go into a hospital and are under the care of allopathic, traditional allopathic uh, uh, systems, a doctor, nurses, uh, IVs, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, whatever, surgeries, whatever we're doing, it's still going to be the body's innate ability to heal itself that makes the difference. Uh, that plus a person's inner attitude about healing. So by directly supplying the body with the nutrients which are normally supplied through food or by supplying the body with nutrients in larger doses than food could ever provide, we could ask the question, doesn't micronutrient therapy work against this natural medicine philosophy which seeks respect for the body's innate ability to heal itself? How, how do we support either view? So first, let it be said that the basis for nutrition, even with all the, the, the changes in our food supply, is still a correct diet. Uh, that may have changed certainly over the last 40 or 50 years because we have uh, played around with our food supply in such a way that it's difficult today. It's much more difficult for me to get the nutrient from an apple than my grandfather got from an apple 60 years ago or than I got from an apple 60 years ago. There are reasons for this, which we can discuss in a moment, but I, I don't want to get too sidetracked. When we talk about supplements, supplements are by definition, a supplement means in addition to, in addition to what? In addition to a correct diet, in addition to good lifestyle. And this needs to be said because in my personal experience, I've had clients who've come to see me complaining of ailments and giving me a long list of the many terrific supplements they take. And when I analyze their daily diet, it's often the case that they're malnourished. They're eating nutrient-poor diets. So having said this, it's my view that supplements are a good strategy 
for taking care of deficiencies. And by taking care of deficiencies, proven clinical deficiencies, bringing ourselves back to the maintenance of health. The world we live in today has unique problems. I just mentioned one of them with an apple and my grandfather. Or an apple and your grandfather out there. These are problems that affect our nutritional status. All nutrients come from the earth. So the first thing to look at is the condition of the earth from where, from where a particular food comes. The soils from which our food supply comes are vastly depleted in mineral content. And that's due to a number of environmental factors. For example, deforestation or the extensive use of pesticides and herbicides or fungicides, the air and food, uh, air and water pollution. Mm. And today we go further. We have the addition of uh, female hormones, the use of antibiotics in, in feed to offset the 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 lowering of the immune system with the uh, with the introduction of female hormones which threatens the system so there's a lot of aspects to our food the foods we're consuming that simply were not the way we've consumed foods for a couple of million years as a human species therefore the foods from these soils are also lower in nutritional value if life comes from the earth then we need to know how much life is in the earth. So lower nutritional value than the same foods that previous generations may have consumed. Or questioning where does this food come from? You know, there are different soils in different parts of the earth today. So that's not to say that previous generations, I don't want, I don't want to go and say that they didn't have their own problems. They certainly did. Many of the problems of previous generations where some plague broke out had to do with poor hygiene and certainly poor nutritional value. People eating a poor diet is not necessarily a new thing, but the fact that the earth was in much better condition in previous times was certainly a plus for people having a chance to get higher nutrients. Another factor today is the high stress of living in a technological society. Um, that and which we're moving at speeds which are perhaps faster than our ability to adapt, our ability to keep up. Stress, as we know, is a critical factor in using up nutrients in the body and placing extra demands on our immune system. Stress diminishes our immune system. So the first part of the answer that we might be looking for is that supplementation can be said to be simply for the purpose of maintaining health at a correct nutritional level. In itself, um, this is a therapy. Without basic nutrient levels, deficiencies may very well develop, which would then lead to disease. The second part implies the preexistence of disease since the question deals with the body's innate ability to heal itself. This is more difficult to answer. In an ideal world, in a utopian world, if all foods consumed were nutrient-rich foods and basic 
common sense prevailed, namely the avoidance of auto-intoxication by overeating or malnourishment by undereating. And if we add this to this, an idea of giving the body a chance to rest outwardly by extra sleep, for example, and inwardly, perhaps by fasting occasionally or periodically, well, then the body, given time, and assuming there's not a life-threatening problem that requires immediate intervention, like a heart aneurysm, um, or a disease like cancer or ischemic uh, heart disease, which involve major biochemical and cellular disturbances, those would require extraordinary intervention. But given those other factors, I believe the body would heal itself. Notwithstanding the above, there is ample justification for micronutrient therapy. And some reasons are as follows. We're not in an ideal world. Uh, Anyone who's been in a hospital knows that hospital diets are nutritionally not great. Foods are overcooked. Uh, The balances are not there. I think that's changing, but that certainly has been what we've, what we've had for many, many years because the idea was not that foods could heal. The idea was, here, these medicines will heal you. Let me just give you enough calories to keep the body going in some form and some idea of, of good food. But, I, I've, you know, I've had occasion to be in hospitals, and I don't remember having great food in hospitals, so... Um, nor when I worked in hospitals did I see very good food. Anyway, foods are not nutrient-rich for the various factors I've previously given. Stress is a continuing factor during illness, which makes greater demands on the immune system. Deficiency, therefore, is a reality that needs to be addressed with micronutrient therapy. For example, radiation and chemotherapy dramatically reduce the blood levels of B-carotene and vitamin A, Disturbances in the heart cells can be inhibited by B-carotene, ubiquinone, uh, vitamins A, C, E, and B6. These micronutrients would no doubt be beneficial in potencies greater than, than those we usually consume in the average diet. So in cases of allergy, a good case can be made for the use of micronutrient therapy as a means, let's say, for building up the immune system. Skin diseases, psoriasis, acne, rosacea, lupus, eczema, boils, these have all been shown to respond to micronutrient therapy. It's possible to give more examples. However, this may suffice as reasons why some amount of micronutrient therapy is probably a good protocol in cases of disease. I think in the time that we have left, I don't want to go further Uh, because the next part of our conversation leads us into a a different topic, and we will look at that at some point in the future. Um, And that goes into understanding how Oriental or different medical systems approach this question. For example, Ayurvedic medicine or Ayurvedic nutrition or Chinese nutrition, because they have a different approach than we have in the West. And very interesting approach, I may say, that that I particularly utilize in my own work with my own clients. So in the time that we have left, I want to uh, 
I want to again welcome you to listening to our show. I'm, I'm so happy that you're with us. Uh, I, I will look for your emails and your follow-up calls and be happy to answer any questions that I can that may give you some deeper insight or help you on your personal journey. My name is Rene David Alkali. I am a board-certified uh, I'm a board-certified naturopathic doctor. I work with a complementary and alternative medicine. My practice is in New York City in Forest Hills, Queens, and you can get on my website www.genesishealthbeauty.com um, both for uh, uh, different products and technologies that that I believe are very helpful, and or to uh, work with me on any kind of personal consultation basis. Also, we have a non-for-profit that offers free programs. That's www.genesissociety.org. Um, please check that out and see what kind of free services we have within our community. And I'm very happy you are with us today on Mind, Body, Spirit, Living a Holistic Life. Please join us next week uh, for a very interesting talk on botanical cleaning of our environment.